So in thinking about tonight's program, um, I realized that for my entire life, the now very familiar POW MIA symbol that flies from flagpoles and is attached to car bumpers and emblazoned on clothing across the country always brought to my mind the image of American men, and it was always men in uniform. So since this was clearly the intent of the symbol's design to never forget the men whose whereabouts were unknown or who were being held in captivity by our enemies, it was very effective. It's only recently that I've been able to appreciate that behind that symbol is a remarkable story of women and their families who in the 1960s and 70s went public exposed the plight of our prisoners of war and servicemen missing in action, and forced the Vietnamese, our own government, and all Americans to take action. It's a powerful story of courage, strength, and determination that I'm glad we can share with all of you this evening. So that the next time you see that symbol, you won't only think of those captured or missing, but also their families hoping for a safe return of loved ones. So some of you may be aware that our museum has a very strong connection to this story. In 2003, the late Phyllis Galanti donated her personal papers to our museum collection, which is an absolute treasure trove of information regarding the creation and activities of the National League of Families. And every day, our guests to our museum learn the story of the National League and we've been proudly displaying the dress that Phyllis wore when she finally was able to welcome her husband, Lieutenant Commander Paul Galanti, home in 1973 after seven years of imprisonment at the notorious Hanoi Hilton. And I'm so honored that Paul is able to be here with us here this evening. Where are you, Paul? introduce our speaker, I thought it would be fitting to take a moment to recognize any veterans or active duty military in the audience, as well as the spouses, children, or parents of those who are serving or who have served in our armed forces. So please, if you wouldn't mind, stand and accept our gratitude for your sacrifice and pleasure to introduce uh, Heath Hartage Lee. Heath is a historian with a museum education and curatorial background, and she's worked at history museums across the country. She holds a BA in history with honors from Davidson College and an MA in French language and literature from the University of Virginia. She's, she is the author of Winnie Davis, Daughter of the Lost Cause, which was the winner of the 2015 Colonial Dames of America Annual Book Award, as well as a 2015 Gold Medal for Nonfiction from the Independent Publisher Book Awards. In 2017, Heath served as the Robert J. Dole Curatorial Fellow, and her exhibition, The League of Wives, Vietnam's POW, MIA Advocates and Allies, premiered at the Dole Institute in May 2017, and we're very lucky to have it now on display upstairs in our museum through September 2nd. So I encourage you to, to go.
go and see that. Her latest book, The League of Wives, the untold story of the women who took on the US government to bring their husbands home from Vietnam, was officially released on Tuesday. <laughs> Heath has done a remarkable job in compiling and telling this important American story. And much as the women of the National League did in the 1960s and 70s regarding America's POWs and service members missing in action, Heath has brought into the light a story that is often overshadowed by the larger narrative that surrounds America's involvement in Vietnam. And for that, we owe her a great debt of gratitude. Now, following Heath's comments, there will be an opportunity for questions. Uh, we have some staff with microphones in each aisle. Um, so just raise your hand and they'll come to you. And so now it's my uh, great pleasure and I hope you'll give a warm welcome to our friend, Heath Lee. Thank you, such a nice welcome. Well, I love the theme of tonight uh, about women making a difference because these women not only made a difference, they made all the difference to these men who were imprisoned in the Hanoi Hilton. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about that in a second, but I also want to thank first my friends at the museum here for first hosting the exhibit, which was fantastic to have it at the same place where Phyllis's archives were, and also to the Antiquarian Booksellers Association and BABA for uh, inviting me to speak tonight on this wonderful theme, which could not have been more perfect for my book. So, let's get started. And it did just come out Tuesday, so you're getting the first East Coast lecture. <laughs> so I want to start with something that, I know we have a lot of military spouses in the room. Um, I bet many of you might remember these protocol guides. Does this look familiar to anyone? The Navy wife, the Army wife, the Marine wife, the Air Force wife. These protocol manuals started actually during World War II, and they have many, even today when you read them, they have lots of really good practical advice about deployments, about moving households, etc. But what they also have is a, a not so subtle sort of propaganda message to wives about ways to dress, ways to cook, ways to decorate. Uh, wedding night lingerie, that kind of <laughs> very important details to the military men. So when you read these now, they seem quaint and kind of funny and kind of offensive, but they're, they're of the time period. You have to take them of the time. And they had many good purposes, but one of the things that they did was to warn young military wives that your job is to help him do his job. So that's what a lot of the wives in my book grew up with, the good and the bad of that. Um, the bonding that occurred among the wives um, was wonderful, and they all kind of looked out for each other when the men were deployed. So the protocol manuals were sort of their bedrock, their Bible. Um, at this point, I'm moving us up to the 1950s, then the 1960s, when the Vietnam War begins. And that's when these manuals start to fall apart. I want to start with um, 
really the rock star center of the book, the power couple in the book. There, there are more. There's more than one, but Sybil and Jim Stockdale, and many of you will remember Jim Stockdale. He was one of the famous Alcatraz Eleven POWs, a huge resistor, a philosopher warrior, just a very interesting combination. Super smart, amazing guy. He did um, run with Ross Perot in 1992. You also might remember that. Sybil, his wife, is not nearly so well known, and she is really the center of this book, the star of the book. There are many stars rotating around her, but she is the founder, the one and only, there's a lot of misinformation out there, but she is the one and only founder of the National League of Families of American Prisoners and Missing in Southeast Asia, which starts off as the League of Wives in San Diego in 1967 under Sybil. And in the book, I say, if there could be an ideal fighter pilot and an ideal fighter pilot's wife, Jim and Sybil Stockdale would have won the titles. Very smart, super well-educated, very well-suited to this position. And Sybil loved the Navy wife. She talked about it being her Bible. And when she taught here at St. Catharines, I don't know if many of you know this, but Sybil taught at St. Catharines where I went to school many, many, many years before I was there. Um, and she said, I would have my nose in the Navy wife and I would skip chapel. I would forget to chaperone the children. Um, I really didn't care once I got engaged about school and my job. And coming from the woman who would become a diplomat, a huge lobbyist, it's funny to think, you know, she was a young, romantic-minded woman. And at this time, when she married Jim, this was in 1947, the, the object, one of the big objects of your life is to get married and have children. So once she and Jim were engaged, she met him at the Naval Academy, um, they were married, and she, the Navy wife was the new Bible. So that's Jim and Sybil. Another couple starring in the book, Jane and Jerry Denton, and I've had the privilege of meeting the wonderful Denton family um, through Mike Denton, who lives here in Richmond, met all of the children and, and have just been so, it's so, so wonderful to get to know all the children and families in the book as well. Jane has passed away as has Jerry Denton, but I show you a picture here of them in France in the 1950s. She looks like Jackie Kennedy. I mean, look at the clothes. Can we just talk about the clothes for a minute? They are so incredible. I mean, that's one of the reasons to do that exhibit. I was like, we gotta have dresses in the exhibit because it's huge. Like, it just sets the tone too. This is in the 1950s, you know, very demure with the pearls, etc. As we get into the war, things change a lot with the fashion as well as the music and all of that. But anyway, Jane and Jerry, I would say, a um, very traditional couple. Jane went to Mary Washington, not too far away in Fredericksburg. She um, left a bit early to marry Jerry. Jerry and Jim Stockdale were classmates at the US Naval Academy in 1947. So they were friends before and um, fate would throw them together again. And I will talk to you about that as we go on. So moving on quickly, the war starts and it escalates. Um, started, we start really, it starts getting hot and heavy, 64, 65, 66. Naval aviators, and, and 
POWs, prisoners of war, for most of you in this audience probably know, but some of the younger folks, <laughs> most of the prisoners of war were naval um, pilots, Navy pilots, or Air Force pilots for the most part. There were POWs in the Army and Marines, other branches, but they tended to be pilots. They were shot down um, by the North Vietnamese in, in Jury's case, and they were many of them were imprisoned in Wallow Prison, which Americans nicknamed the Hanoi Hilton, gallows humor. It was far from any Hilton we know. It's absolutely a horrible place. Um, Jerry Denton was captured in 1966. So he's there in the Hanoi Hilton with, with many others, including his co-pilot, Bill Schutte. And it, this still that I have is of this film, um, a propaganda film he was forced to make, he did not want to make, none of these POWs wanted to make any kind of communist propaganda film, but their communist captors often forced them to do this, where they would go on and say, you know, I'm well treated, I'm getting medical care. They were getting anything but that. They were being tortured, many of them, within an inch of their life. And Jerry was one of these poor souls that was tortured horribly. But what I thought was so brilliant about what he did, it was so out of the box, he used that propaganda film to blink torture in Morse code, which is incredible. I mean, how would you think to do that? All these pilots that went into combat zones went to SEER school, which is that survival evasion escape school that they still have. So these POWs too had learned the techniques for surviving were they to be captured, but nobody taught Jerry Denton to blink in Morse code. That was really thinking out of the box. Um, and a little insider tip, get the Atlantic, the May issue, because they asked me to write about what did she think was the most courageous act in history? And I talked about Jerry Denton. I just think this is amazing. He knew he could be executed, tortured for sure, but he did it because he. this was a way he could signal to naval intelligence about what was going on. Nobody really knew. And this was one of the first signs that these prisoners were not being treated according to the Con Geneva Conventions and were being terribly tortured. Just one of the most brilliant things I, I think I've ever seen and the most courageous. Another subtle sign that the POWs were not being treated well was the Hanoi March. So this was July 6th of 1966. At this point, there are more and more of these pilots are being shot down. Another um, propaganda ploy the North Vietnamese used was to march the POWs through the streets, um, jeering and shouting at them. Paul Galanti was one of the people there. I know he was hit in the groin. People were battered, um, poked with bayonets. But what was so not smart of the communists, and Jerry Denton pointed this out, that this would backfire on them, he was leading the POWs through the march, is that what a dumb thing to film this, because then the world started to see not Americans, as I say in the book, slinking cravenly through the streets, but people being beaten and still holding their head up, you know, being soldierly, you know, trying to get through it when they were being battered to death. And and Jerry Denton was, he was quoted as saying, you know, hold your head up and show your pride. You're Americans, you know, don't let these people get to you. Even, and that's what everybody did. They behaved so courageously. 
This also was very bad publicity for the North Vietnamese. So another instance where it was now beyond an inkling, people were really figuring out that things were not going well for the prisoners in um, Vietnam. Oh, my least favorite person in the book. I know I should be nonpartisan, and I really do try to be for the most part, but LBJ, mm, not good. He did do some good things like the Civil Rights Act, that's cool. He was not nice to my ladies at all. So, you know, just would not speak with them, would not meet with the POW MIA wives. And the policy that um, I'm just gonna mention right now, the policy for these prisoner of war and missing in action wives was keep quiet. Now this was not Johnson's policy to be fair. This had been the policy under Kennedy and even before. If you were captured, the wife could not say anything about where her husband was, about what was going on, and certainly not that he was being tortured or anything like that. The government told the women, the, all the liaisons for the Navy, the Air Force, POW, MIA wives, said, if you don't keep quiet, they might execute him, they might torture him, it might be worse, and they really didn't know. So at first, it made sense to kind of keep that on the down low, but as the years went on and the beatings continued and the torture continued and nothing was changing for the POWs, Sybil and her League of Wives, including Phyllis and others, realized that this was not right. This was the wrong call. But under LBJ, that was the policy the entire time, and he loved to have photo ops with the ladies here. We see him with Sybil on North Island um, in Coronado, and he loved to have them smile for the cameras, but he would not meet with them. Even worse, he and Avril Harriman, um, who was the head of, he was in the State Department, the head of POW MIA Affairs, they knew the POWs were being tortured. Um, that film where Jerry Denton blinked torture, Naval Intelligence knew immediately that they were being tortured, but the general public did not know that. So the government under Johnson and with Harriman's advice made the decision that Harriman said, what would it help for the US public to know that the POWs were being tortured? That would just make it worse. And those of you who have studied LBJ know his great society and domestic policy, that was what he cared about. He was not good at foreign policy and never, with Vietnam, could never make a decision. He was sort of half in and half out. So the women were a problem, a nuisance, and something to be swept under the rug during the Johnson administration. So Sybil and her League of Wives do what a lot of us women do very well, organize themselves, they are furious. They are talking to each other all the time, this keep quiet thing. Now they do try to keep it quiet for the general public, but amongst themselves, these wives are at first just grieving and kind of hanging out together and deriving a lot of comfort from being together. So they don't organize immediately. But uh, over the next couple of years, Jim, Jim is shot down in 1965 also. The years continue to go on. After a couple of years, they realize the government has no idea what they're doing, even though they're always telling them that they do. So it falls to her, if you were in the military at this time, and it's still somewhat <coughs> true, your rank as the wife reflects your husband's rank. So Sybil is the default leader when Jim is not there of the West Coast wives. It, it's just a natural, nobody even thinks about it. Um, and the other wives kind of fall in line behind her 
but really they fan out together. The hierarchy also starts to dissipate and they all start working together to try to decide what to do next. They have some wonderful help. This is another favorite person for me in the story on the good side, on the, on the plus side of the equation, Bob Burris. So Bob is a Naval Intelligence Officer and he was the primary one that I studied uh, in terms of covert operations with the women. Uh, the wives called him Uncle Bob and Uncle Bob, unlike some of the other government people, he would only work within their silo of the State Department or the Defense Department. He would go up, around, under, he would talk to anybody, he would get any intelligence he could without crossing any legal lines or any you know protocol lines, but he would find out everything he could. He was straight up with the women. He didn't try to patronize them, like the State Department was famous for patronizing the women and saying, oh, here they come again, let's run. You know, they just didn't want to deal with them, but Bob was the one who said, these are smart women, and I think they're going to be the key to getting the POWs out. He's the one that really figures that out, and that indeed is what happens. So I like him because he's kind of a rogue James Bond. He's kind of like Daniel Craig, where he just does stuff that he shouldn't do, but he's so cool, and he gets away with it, so I love that. <laughs> I love that. Now, so Bob, Uncle Bob, takes Sybil under his wing, and Sybil becomes one of his most proficient coders. She learns to code secret letters to Jim. She isn't the only one who does this. A lot of the wives, Phyllis Galanti did this, um, Jane Denton did this. Now, during the war, nobody talked about this, and even for years after, no one talked about this. I'm only mentioning this now because it is declassified, and I also, it's been declassified for a long time, and I try to not go into very particulars of how this works because some of it is still used today. But suffice it to say that they did a lot of things like double speak, um, a lot of symbols. The symbol for Jim to soak his letter, either in urine or water, was a rose in the picture, and they would almost always have a rose to signal him. It took a while for him to, you know, to figure this out, of course. But when he soaked these, um, a photograph particularly, a secret message would come up. It's super James Bond, cool. So there was that, and then he could write between the lines of the letters. They had this kind of carbon paper that he could press down and write between the lines. And his North Vietnamese captors were, were not figuring this out. So in this way, Sybil finds out she gets a letter back after she codes one with Bob saying, in leg iron, 16 hours a day, tortured within an inch of our life, yet another confirmation of what's going on, and the government is still ignoring this and not dealing with it and letting the guys suffer. So of course, Sybil and the wives start to get beyond angry, just they, they're gonna take matters into their own hands. So then they have their frenemy, Cora Weiss. Um, she's the co-founder of Calliopham, um, and it's a, co it's a committee of liaison for servicemen detained in North Vietnam. It's, it's a, quote, peace activist group. And there's a, a large spectrum of peace and anti-war activists, some of whom have very pure motives and just want the war to end. And some like Cora, who after reviewing all the documents, and I spent years on this, it, it, she was really not doing this for a great cause. Um, her group was 
pretty far to the left, had a lot of communist ties. She was working directly with the North Vietnamese and sort of her group took the view of the North Vietnamese of the war. However, she decided to help, and I put that in quotes, in air quotes, help, help the POW wives and the POWs by delivering letters back and forth to the camps. Because at this point, so this is in 69 when Calliopham is founded, um, Nixon comes in in 68, but we're still at the tail end of LBJ and there is nothing is coming in and out of the camps at this point. The North Vietnamese have banned anything from the US government coming in and out and they will do the same under Nixon. So Cora is the frenemy because she is doing something much needed, which is delivering these letters back and forth. However, in exchange, she, they force the wives to consume all this propaganda, which the wives are smart enough to just pretend they're taking it and not pay any attention to it. So they know what they are. It's an uneasy alliance, and it, it sometimes works well, and it sometimes doesn't. But even the State Department starts working with these folks because they're so desperate to get communications between. So they do serve a, a good purpose, but... Um, I would say their motives are mixed at best, and you can read more in the book. Andre Rander is so lovely. She is one of the POW wives. She was just here a couple weeks ago for the opening of the exhibit, and some of you may have met her. She lives in Bethesda, Maryland, and she is one of the few POW wives who is an army wife. Her husband, Don Rander, was an enlisted um, army, uh, I believe, sergeant. He had some undercover intelligence training. He was captured during the Tet Offensive in Hue. So he was not with these other POWs I've been talking about for a long time, but um, had a terrible time, was in the house with six other people. But Andrea gets the phone call. You either find this out by a black car that pulls up to your driveway to tell you your husband's been shot down or is missing, or in her case, she got uh, visit at work. She was a paraprofessional um, nurse social worker and she got a call at work to come to the office and her doctor would be there and they told her her husband had been captured, was missing, he was MIA for about a month, then they found out he was a POW. But her significance on the home front, she and Sybil become good friends and she becomes the first African-American woman and the only African-American woman on the founding board of the National League of Families and is very active, goes to Paris to confront the North Vietnamese. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about her trips with Sybil to do so to um, raise awareness of the POW MIA issue. She becomes a very important figure in this. And when I interviewed her, I said, well, what was, what was the biggest problem working with the other wives? And she said, rank, not race. The race for her, she said, was a non-issue. Everybody was working towards the same goal, but the rank, she was an enlisted man's wife and she was working with officers' wives and there's a whole hierarchy there. But the really cool thing about the National League is A, it's born fully integrated and B, this hierarchy goes away. Now, I, I don't think today necessarily it's completely gone away, but for everybody, for this POW MIA cause, they put aside race, rank, branch of service. Nobody cares. They just want to get the guys out. And I thought that was such an interesting quote she gave me. So these trips that I was mentioning, 
The National League under Sybil, and this is actually before the National League is incorporated in 1970 when it truly becomes a national organization. Before that, it's, it's a bunch of regional groups that Sybil leads under uh, kind of a loose umbrella. So we're right about to get into that incorporation, but Sybil is here, Andrea is here, so Pat Mearns to Sybil's right, and some other wives that they go, and this starts uh, sort of a, a trend of all the wives flying to Paris, usually a sponsor, I believe it was Fairchild Hiller that sponsored this, not the government, not the US government ever sponsoring this, but companies would pay for them to go over and go sit at the embassy, make calls, confront the North Vietnamese at their embassy in Paris, also in Sweden, I'll talk about in a minute, Phil is going to do that, to say, where's my husband? Give me an accounting. And they would bring tons of letters from people across the country writing to say, you've got to follow the Geneva Conventions. You've got to treat these men as you, should, as you have agreed to. The North Vietnamese had signed those conventions. And they were violating them at every turn. So it was basically a way to generate really bad publicity. Um, they didn't get anywhere usually when they went to the embassy, but they did generate huge publicity and huge public sympathy. So this is one of the first trips like that. Ross Perot. I have to tell one quick Ross Perot story. So I did get to interview him on the phone for um, the book several times. And every time, I could never set an interview time. But he knew I wanted to interview him, and I would get this cute call from his secretary with her Texas drawl, and I'd just get a random call in the middle of the morning, Ross Pro on the line to talk to you, Ms. Lee, and I'd be like, oh my god, I'm diving for my notes, I'm trying to find everything. So he, he's a really cool guy, and, but I never knew when he was going to call, but when he did call, the information I got was just amazing. And his staff was incredible. They gave me all these amazing photos, including this one. Ross Crow, for those of you who don't know, is a, a Texas billionaire. I think most of you might know who he is. Some of the younger ones, maybe not. He was a millionaire at this point. But he also went to the Naval Academy a little later than Jerry Denton and Jim Stockdale and was just boundlessly generous in terms of doing, putting his money where his mouth was and really helping with ads about the POWs, tiger cages he put all over at the US State Capitol and elsewhere to show what the POWs mainly in the South were dealing with um, and just the inhumane treatment. He would do anything he could do to publicize this. And he also took a lot of the POW MIA wives in the, particularly from the Dallas area, to do the same thing Sybil was doing, confront the North Vietnamese, take letters. He tried to fly in medical supplies and food one Christmas, which of course just got turned around, didn't get there, but what it did do was a bunch of bad publicity for the North Vietnamese. That all helped tremendously. So he was a huge benefactor of this cause and, and is very beloved by the POW MIA community for what he did. So now we see a big change under Nixon. So the keep quiet policy, you'll remember under LBJ, very quickly disappears under Nixon. And now we have the go public policy. Now many of the government people that I interviewed wanted me to think that that was all the Nixon administration. They were certainly extremely supportive and helpful, but the women went public on their own far before the government had this idea and really before they wanted them to. So Sybil went public with 
um, her husband's situation with Jim's situation in October of 1968. Louise Mulligan in Virginia Beach, her husband Jim Mulligan, another of the Alcatraz 11 um, POWs, she went public in August of 69. So all over the country, you know, once Sybil went public, it was like wildfire. Everybody was let out of their cage and they started giving talks, going on television, giving newspaper interviews, and this all changes the tide. People will go, oh my gosh, what is going on? We can't allow this. And it really does change um, international policy and government policy. The first day Nixon is in office um, as the president, he is deluged with thousands of telegrams um, that Sybil organizes in a what she called a telegram in, kind of like a sitting. Um, these wives were not feminists, but they were watching the civil rights movements, they were watching the feminist movement, and they were borrowing techniques. Um, so he's deluged with these telegrams, and they say, you better make the POW MIA issue a priority if you want our support. Very, very smart. And it worked. And Nixon, I think, had a natural affinity also. He had been in World War II, very sympathetic to veterans and to the military. So it was a great alignment of goals. And the POW-MIA cause was a unifying cause for the whole country. And here is Senator Bob Dole, who I just adore, the driest sense of humor, the nicest man, and just the funny, one of the funniest people. We always argue about barbecue. Um, He's from Kansas City, and that stuff is just gross. It's sticky. <laughs> and he's like, no, Kansas City is the best. I'm like, oh, no, your wife Elizabeth agrees with me. It is Eastern North Carolina barbecue, always. So Elizabeth and I are like team barbecue, you know, East North Carolina barbecue. We can't convince the senator of this, but he's got many other good points, so we let him off the hook. His really good point, at least in my book, is that he is one of the few senators um, in Washington. He, he comes to D.C. in 1961, but is a junior senator in 1969 when this whole Vietnam crisis is going on. And he is horrified to know, as a wounded combat veteran, I think many of you know he's permanently disabled from his World War II service, and he was a real hero in that war, very sympathetic to veterans. And he told me, I did a bunch of interviews with him, and he said, quote, no one even knew in Washington what a POW or an MIA was. I mean, which is incredible. What about all those other wars, like Korea, World War II? But it was more like an out of sight, out of mind. And also, you must know that the POWs in the Vietnam War were far less numerous than in other wars. So it was far easier to ignore them. But Bob Dole made these women, Sybil Stockdale, the National League, and the POW MIA cause a big, huge priority for him, just like President Nixon did, and Ross Perot, who you see here with them. So they finally had a big team of people supporting them. It was a huge switch from the Harriman slash Johnson nightmare. Uh, Sybil said, dark, dark days under Johnson, bright, sunny days under Nixon. So that was the switch. Louise Mulligan, who I mentioned earlier, is, I call her kind of the Joan of Arc of the POW MIA movement. When the League is founded in um, May of 1970, she speaks at Constitution Hall, the DAR's place in DC, and she just gets up on the podium and everyone else has had these, you know, meaningful, nice speeches about, you know, how horrible the situation is and what they're gonna do. And she gets up and she yells, Mayday, Mayday help us, help us. And everybody in the room is like, oh my gosh. 
So it galvanizes people in a way, in a very visceral way, that the platitudes, the patronization of all these women, and also just, you know, the blah, blah, it just wasn't getting to people. That got to people. That really galvanized people and bound this movement together, the National League, the families that were at this speech. It was all families, um, husbands, wives, sisters of POWs and MIAs. So she's a real heroic figure of this movement. And here's Fearless Phyllis with her Write Hanoi, Bring Paul Home letter writing campaign. Um, Phyllis, before this, this is in, in March of 71, she had spoken not long before in February to the Senate. And um, those of you who knew Phyllis or know of her, and even if you don't, she was a very shy, very diplomatic um, person, did not like the spotlight, did not want that, but Paul being shot down forced her to become Fearless Phyllis, where she was a diplomat and she was coding letters and she was a lobbyist and she would become a very high-ranking member of the National League. That was not in her natural bent, but she knew she had to do that. So she spoke to the Virginia Senate and gave this great speech where she said, you know, Paul has been in this rat hole of the Hanoi Hilton for four and a half years now. Why can the greatest country in the world not get him out? Good question. So that was changing, but we were so, she was still dealing with all this ignorance and people just not wanting to deal with the issue. So Sweden, neutral country, there was a thought, and Bob Dole had this too and wrote Phyllis about it, that perhaps Sweden would intern these POWs under more humane circumstances. So Phyllis got her Swedish passport ready and she went to Sweden and confronted the North Vietnamese got them a lot of bad publicity, which was awesome. And just, you know, again, the point was the PR to make them look bad and then to try to go to the embassy and get any information that they could. Um, I'm actually wearing a pin. I'll stand up so you can see it, that her good friend Judy Clifford went with her to Sweden. And Judy, their friend Connie Richardson, and Phyllis all got these pins, which I am wearing it now. It is my honor to have it. Judy gave me her pin and it's the seal of Sweden. And they had um, people in the Swedish government who wanted to help them. The American ambassador, Jerome Holland, wanted to help them. But due to Sweden's politics, it was just not to be, it didn't work. But it was a valiant effort, and they dumped 750,000 letters on the doorstep of the embassy, and that, of course, made for great television and lots of embarrassment. So it was actually, it was kind of a win-win. Sybil, Phyllis, and Maureen Dunn. These are all, at this point, Phyllis is very high up in the National League. Uh, let's see, she's about to become the chairman of the National League. Um, Sybil was the league's first national coordinator, but she had stepped down but was still very involved. And you can see here, they're just hanging out with Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon, you know, having some tea, talking about POW MIA issues. They are now the experts, the ones who are sought after, the ones who are partnering with the Nixon administration on policy. So we have come a long way from LBJ to Nixon and this power that they have, which they're using for good effect for the National League. And here we have Phyllis with Helene Knapp, who's also a big figure in the book. Helene is a MIA wife in Colorado Springs. Um, her husband Herman never came home, so she's one that 
never got that resolution that the other women had. She and Phyllis were great friends. They worked together very closely. Helene was the national coordinator, Sybil's old role, though there were some people in between Sybil and Helene. And she ran the day-to-day -day, uh, National League efforts in DC. And Sybil was, I'm sorry, um, Phyllis was the chairwoman of the National League, which is a huge deal, this huge national organization with thousands of members. And they're pretty much running the show and telling Nixon and Kissinger what needs to be done. They don't always listen, but they, you know, they do a pretty good job of um, taking their concerns into account and um, trying to get the POWs back and the missing accounted for it. Okay, spoiler alert. Who's under 40 here? If you're under 40, you might want to close your eyes. My nephew, Owen, I see over there. This is a huge spoiler alert, Owen, okay? So you may or may not want to listen to this. Most of you, I think, know how the story ends. I hate to give away the ending before you've read the book, but many of you already know what happens, and it's a happy ending for most of the POWs. They do indeed finally come home in great part due to the efforts of these women to publicize the inhumane treatment, to go public with the torture, and to just keep the pressure on whatever government administration is there to get them out. They are a very good voting block, and if you don't keep this group happy, they might not vote for you. So it kind of works in all different ways, um, and a happy alignment of goals, I think, with the Nixon administration to get the guys out. So after the um, Christmas bombing to you under Nixon, things really start to turn around and they finally come home in an effort called Operation Homecoming, this mammoth effort to get the POWs back home. And there are several planes that come back with the POWs, three planes, 40 on one, 40 POWs on one plane, 40 on another, 36 on the last one and they come through Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, they're kind of debriefed, and then they head back to their original homes or areas of deployment. So the first one, I love this picture of Jerry and Jane Denton. I mean, you can just see how happy and how relieved and thrilled everyone is. This was just taken right on the runway at Naval Station, Norfolk. So they are reunited at last with all their children and the new spouses. It's been so long, years and years. So now Jerry's meeting all these new daughters-in-law. So, and new children. It's just, it's crazy. It's almost like a Rip Van Winkle kind of situation. So that's one reunion. And then Jim Stockdale with his children, and, and you see several of the children. One of their kids, Sid, had a hockey game at the Kent School, and they were like, you're not going to miss that hockey game. So he did the hockey game. They won the title. It was a big deal. We all know this. Those of us who have kids who are in sports, they have got to go. So um, Sid went to the hockey game, came back. They all had a huge steak dinner with tons of ice cream, and it was just heaven. So it, they had a wonderful reunion. This is at Miramar near San Diego. Oh, I love this picture. I mean, yeah. They are just so darn good looking. It's just like, wow. Yeah, they both look like movie stars. And I think Paul weighed, what, 120 pounds when he came back? 
You look good here, though. I mean, you know, I think you look great. And Phyllis is gorgeous. So this is a very Hollywood reunion. And um, this picture actually came from the Times-Dispatch. I wanted the Newsweek picture, but it was a little out of my price budget. So we went with the RTD one. But I think this is just as good. And the one thing that I thought was so interesting about their reunion is that Phyllis was terrified. The Navy psychiatrist told all the women that they were gonna have, their husbands would be violent and they would be monsters and they would be drinking and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, nope, not having any problems, nothing, all of them. And there is a super low rate of PTSD among Hanoi Hilton uh, prisoners of war. You can read about it in the book, but um, that group, many of them were fortunate to escape some of the worst cases of. Andrea's husband, Don Ranger, had severe PTSD when he came home. He didn't fare so well. Um, but Phyllis said her fears were groundless and it was just lovely and wonderful. So that is a great ending. And the only ones I wanna recognize that did not have the great ending are the MIAs like Helene Knapp. And we're still searching for these poor guys that are just God knows where all over the place. I, I just had an MIA wife contact me um, whose husband after 50 years, his remains were just repatriated to the US. So we're still, finding people and for a number of years after the war ended the Vietnamese would not let us in the country so we couldn't identify <coughs> remains now it's all open and they're still finding these remains so we should always remember those that did not come home um, they're the ones that we need to keep in our thoughts one last slide can't neglect the Nixon White House Gala. It's so glamorous. You can go online on YouTube and watch this, and I had so much fun watching it. Again, the clothes, like, to die for. 70s chiffon, paisley, lots of big hair, lots of eyeshadow. I mean, just fantastic clothes. And the guys all looked fantastic in their navy and the dress whites. This is actually Jerry Denton kind of to the left, Jim Stockdale and Sybil in the middle, um, and Nixon over there. So everyone just had the time of their lives. They had a fabulous meal of sirloin and strawberry mousse and new potatoes. Bob Hope was the MC. He and Jim were hanging out introducing the program on TV. Um, Henry Kissinger had just come from Paris where he was negotiating a ceasefire. And um, Paul, do you remember what he said to you that night? You're right, she gave me so much trouble. <laughs> I can't do any better than that, so I'm stopping. Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you everyone. chance to interview or attempt to interview John McCain or his wife at the time? I did. I did get to interview John McCain and he gave me some of the best things at the end about the treatment changing like a light switch once the wives got very active that he had noticed it was day and night he was moved out of solitary confinement. Um, he said without these wives many more men would have died. And he also said that keep, I said, do you think keep quiet was the wrong call? And he said, absolutely. So I did, was fortunate to interview him before he passed away. Certainly. Other questions? 
I just want to say, um, <clears throat> Jerry and Jane Denton are my parents. And uh, and your great grandparents. And uh, it's kind of an incredible story from the inside. And with Paul being away, you know, I was I was inside of this part of the story. And I just I can't be more impressed with the way. That Heath has written this story. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's so difficult to go into someone else's world and do it elegantly and do it eloquently. And um, I'm, I'm literally blown away by the book for the reality that comes through it uh, for not just people interested in the POW story, but. Uh, women and their transition through this time that our society you mentioned Rip Van Winkle dad yes. there that's Pat Nixon beside of it um, yes. dad he described it more like Alice in Wonderland yeah. where you know you drop from one reality that you were defending and living up to into another one which as we all know in the early 70s was an incredibly difficult social time imagine being gone from 68 to 73 um, and what you read it. Anyway, I just want to say that I'm literally blown away by the caliber of the story that she's written here. Oh, thank you. Right. There was definitely a lot of back and forth, and many of you may remember the pieces at hand, Henry Kissinger's statement, when peace really was not at hand. So I will say the wives at the end were very tired of all government administrations. Um, LBJ, Nixon, they just wanted the guys home. I think there was a dovetail, though, with the Nixon administration because the POW-MIA cause was a unifying cause, and everybody could get behind it. And most of these women were conservative military wives that aligned a lot more with those values. So I think I would call it a happy alignment of values. And also, you know, Nixon wanted to win the next election. He knew these were they were an important voting block also. So it wasn't all out of the goodness of his heart, but I do think the goals aligned. I do think he had some sympathy as a war veteran. I also think he really liked strong women, his daughters, his wife. Those were the opinions he sought. And I think these women were kind of ideal women to him, and he really respected that. So there was an alignment, but there was also, at the end of the conflict, a lot of fracturing in the National League. And many of them went, not many, but a number of them went over to McGovern and stumped for McGovern because they had just had it. And Louise Mulligan was like, I am sick of this, I am done with it. So it really, they were all really tired of it by the end. Heath, have you yes. had the opportunity to visit Vietnam at the end of this life's work to close the circle? 
What a good question. Well, my dear friend Pam Sexton and I, we will talk in just a second or maybe now. Um, we are taking a trip to Vietnam and I'm going to be co-hosting it with Pam because this is the one, this story is all on the home front. So I couldn't justify going, nor did my publisher give me the funds with my advance <laughs> to do such a trip. Oh, but that would happen. I would have been there in a heartbeat. But I really wanted to also focus on the home front and not get you know too distracted by that. But exactly right that now is the time to go. So I do plan to go next April. And um, we invite anyone that would like to go to talk. PM's gonna talk about it for a second and we'll have some information outside after the talk about it. It has been my pleasure to have an advanced copy of the book, The League of Wives. And I am here to tell you, it is a page turner. It might not sound like one, but it's better than James Bond. Oh, I love that endorsement. <laughs> yes. Uh, Heath is my co-host, and a year from now, March 28th to April 6th or April 8th, we will go first to Hanoi and the Hanoi Hilton, which was originally built by the French for the Vietnamese uh, political prisoners. They've cleaned it up a lot, but it is still very spooky. And um, I told Paul Galani that I was going and uh, that I would tell him all about it when I came home. Yes. And he didn't want to hear it. <laughs> I don't blame you, Paul. So Hanoi first, and the Hanoi Hilton, and then a day at Halong Bay, which is ethereal rock formations and lunch on a, an antique uh, teak sailing vessel, Hoi An, and then Ho Chi Minh City, which they still call Saigon in the inner city. And then an optional extension to Cambodia and Angkor Wat. So there'll be more information at the book signing. Thanks, Pam. Ellen and Joseph, how are you? I would love to hear about Jane Fonda. What did she have to oh, do with all this? I just yes. remember hearing my parents talk about that. Oh, Jane Fonda. Yes, Hanoi Jane, who people love so much. You know, I decided not to give her a whole lot of ink. I do think she's a fabulous actress, not to take away from that. She was not such a good activist, and she always claims to be a feminist, but she really just takes the policies of her husband's, you know, in, in the past. Maybe now she's changed. Um, I, you know, the wives, it was interesting. You know, the POWs and uh, those in that community, the men absolutely hate Jane Fonda. And I think it maybe is, I mean, deserved for sure because she was denying there were POWs. In the women's mind, though, it was interesting because they did not see her as, of any particular interest or threat. You know, they kind of saw her as a Hollywood movie star that it was fashionable to, to be an activist. Cora Weiss, who I mentioned earlier, that was the one, she was dangerous. She was really smart and really connected um, and had, you know, very almost familial relations with the North Vietnamese and the communists. So the women said, we didn't worry a lot about Jane Fonda. We never just, she didn't have any traction. She just said some idiotic things and we dismissed it. Cora was the one 
that was, they called her public enemy number one. And when they worked with her, they said, we're doing a deal with the devil, but we would do it to get our husbands back. Thank so, you, good question. So we have time for one, one final question before he goes up into the lobby where you can um, ask anything you want and have her sign copies of your book. But the last question is gonna be right here. I just wondered how many people are still missing in action. Is there a number? There is a number. I feel like it's, and I, I'm terrible with numbers, but I feel like at last count, I want to say it's 1,519. There is a, D, and somebody could look it up real quick. It's dpaa.mil. They have the, the most recent statistics, and it is amazing. They are still recovering people not left and right by any means, but it, it is amazing, like this woman that was just on CBS, that Charlotte Shaw that contacted me, um, 50 years, and her husband had been sort of shot down over this kind of rocky atoll, and I still don't even understand how they found it, but they do do these digs, you know, and do forensic digs, and try to find DNA, try to find bone, it, it continues to go on, and there still are a lot unaccounted for, and a big reason for that is because, A, the forest in Vietnam, the jungle, is so dense. It was just almost impossible to find people. And then um, the communists wouldn't let us in the country for a number of years, so we couldn't do the search when it was a, a fresh um, death. So it, it really stalled us out in terms of, of those numbers.